reading from the book of Ruth, chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah went into the country of Moab and sojourned there, he and his wife and his two sons. The man's name was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech died. And so the woman was left with her two sons, and these married Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived in the land 10 years, and Malon and Kilion died, so the woman was without her two sons and without her husband. And so she rose with her daughters-in-law to return from Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them bread. And so they set out from where they were, her and her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each one of you, in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. And they said, no, we will go with you to your people. And she said, turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Have I still yet sons in my womb that they should become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. I am too old for a husband. If I should have hope, even if I should have a husband this day and bear sons, will you therefore wait till they are grown? Will you therefore refrain from marrying? No. No. My daughters, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices again, and they wept, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So Naomi said, look, see, your sister-in-law has returned to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death should separate us. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I met Norm four years ago. I've changed his name, but Norm and I met four years ago in my former parish in Ottawa, Canada. It's a lot colder in February than it is here. I know I've heard lots of people complaining about the weather this week, but trust me, if you're in Ottawa this week, it's much, much colder. And as a result, being in a downtown inner city parish with a street community living around us, local parishes would open up our buildings during the day, throughout the year, an opportunity to come in during the day, get a hot meal, get some warmth, have some pastoral fellowship. But then 
a number of us, seven different churches would open up the doors in the evenings of that week. And we had our particular night and the street community would come in and we'd have an opportunity to serve them food and serve them fellowship and lead them in worship. And that, it was in that context I met Norm. And Norm, uh, like many in the street community, uh, was suffering from a wide variety of challenges. Uh, very hard to understand, very, very uh, thick speech impediment. And, but here's what struck me with Norm when I first met him. Joy. Joy. Just absolute joy. And the amazing thing is as joyful as Norm was, he just kept getting more joyful. Every time I'd see him, week after week, more joyful, more joyful. And then finally one day he came in and I'd never seen joy like this before. And I could not understand what he was sharing with me. So he finally pulled out his phone and he showed me pictures of his baptism. Norm had been baptized at one of these churches. And he was saying, look, see, I, I, I'm, I'm now you know, in the community. I'm now a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. He was so excited. And the amazing thing with Norm is he was everywhere. I'd go to different churches around the city and there's Norm. And then I'd, you know, go to some event somewhere and there's Norm. Norm knew everybody in town and everybody knew Norm. It was amazing. I, one day I came in and Norm uh, asked me about my, my car. You'd bought a car this week. And I said, Norm, how do you know I bought a car this week? And he said, Corey, who sold you the car, was one of the sponsors at my baptism. And he told me about your new car. I mean, Norm was everywhere. He was steadfast and joyful. But what would strike me as well in this almost, almost contradiction with this incredible joy and this steadfastness was that when Norm, who was a great hugger, would hug you, Norm, still living on the street, would leave behind a remembrance of his presence. He really would. It was, it was just, you know, it's that, it's that smell that you know, those of you who've worked with street-engaged people, people who still live on the street, that sort of cigarette, dirt, unwashed pain smell. It just smelt like pain. I mean, the circumstances of his life were literally on display, or at least for consumption on my jacket every time I'd hug Norm. And it was almost like a contradiction. It's like, here's this guy full of joy and full of the Lord, and look at his circumstances, just so difficult and so unavoidable to notice. Norm wrote on Facebook a few years after I met him, after his baptism, he wrote this on Facebook. He said, never change your theology to fit your circumstances. Never change your theology to fit your circumstances. God's word is eternal your circumstances are temporary. Wow, Norm. Keeps surprising. Keeps shocking. This steadfastness. And I would look at this man who, it was almost a seeming contradiction between totally broken circumstances and incredible joy and love and faith. And I'd say, Lord, I need more steadfastness like Norm. Even in the darkest moments, even in the hardest times, well, my question today is, how do we grow in that kind of steadfastness in the face of all circumstances? I think we do what we're doing today. We begin a four-week journey through the book of Ruth. Because Ruth gives us an incredible picture of steadfast faith in the midst of really difficult circumstances. 
I mean, people love the book of Ruth for lots of different reasons. Uh, it's a love story. People love love stories. It's got a happy ending, spoiler alert. Um, it's uh, full of virtuous characters, at least two. Um, it's a kingship narrative for King David. If you want to know where King David comes from, you've got to read the book of Ruth. So there's all kinds of reasons that people love the book of Ruth. Here's why I love the book of Ruth. Because I see Christ prefigured in this book. Just like we see all throughout the Old Testament. Remember what St. Augustine said of the Old Testament and the New Testament? That in the new, the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. Right? In other words, as we read Scripture, it's one story and Christ is the center of that whole story. And we find Christ in Ruth. And do you know what happens? Is we also see Christ-likeness. Christ-like behavior and attitudes in the book of Ruth. But in order to understand that Christ-like behavior, we first need to look at the circumstances. How do we stay steadfast in our faith in the midst of horrible circumstances? Well, look with me. We're in Ruth chapter 1. It comes right after Judges. Verse 1, let's see just how dark these circumstances were. It begins with these words, in the days when the judges ruled, which is a reference to the period of history when God was raising up judges for Israel. There was no king yet in Israel. If you're in the book of Ruth, you just look one page over, other side, and you'll see at the end of the book of Judges, this said of this time period. In verse 25 of Judges chapter 21, in those days there was no king in Israel, Everybody did what was right in his own eyes. There was no centralized government. It was anarchy. And so this set of circumstances for the book of Ruth, where we're going to see this amazing steadfast faith, it begins in anarchy. But it gets worse because not only is it anarchy, but we read that there was a famine in the land. There was no food. There was no bread. Now, I don't know if you, if you can imagine, but put anarchy and then put famine together and see what happens. I mean... Canadians, at least in Vancouver, where I grew up, we riot over losing the Stanley Cup. I mean, can you imagine what anarchy mixed with no food will do? I mean, these are dark times, dark circumstances. And it gets even worse because we're told that this man who's caught in this famine is from Bethlehem, a man of Bethlehem. And of course, Bethlehem, the reason this is ironic is that Bethlehem, Bethlehem, means house of bread. I mean, it's just trying to dig the point in. Here is famine. There's no bread in the house of bread. Just to punch that home, right? No bread in the house of bread. And so what does he do? He goes to Moab, verse 1 goes on to say. He goes to sojourn in the country of Moab. There's no bread in the house of bread. There's anarchy. So let's go to Moab so we can find some bread. But we need to remember that in the history of Israel, Moab had a very particular special relationship with Israel when it came to bread. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, Moses, through God, God through Moses, is given a command. It's in the constitution of Israel that says this, that no Ammonite or Moabite, people of Moab, may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, 
Um, to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord because they did not meet you, Israel, with bread and water when you came out of Egypt. There was that story that when Israel was coming out of Egypt, they were going through, they wanted to go through the country of Moab. And so they said, would you let us safely pass through? We will touch nothing. Let us buy some bread. And Moab would not give them an ounce of bread. Do you hear the irony of the dark circumstances of the opening of the book of Ruth? There is anarchy. There is no bread in the house of bread. And so let's go to the place that's known for not giving bread to Israelites. I mean, this is the most desperate circumstance. Why would you go to Moab to ask for bread? Because they're that desperate. It's dark. The circumstances are horrible. Can you imagine this family going to Moab? Breadless from Bethlehem. And then the, let's add insult to injury. What's the man's name? The man's name is Elimelech, which means God is my king. I mean, can you imagine him walking in, breadless, broken? What's your name? Uh, God is my king. Really? God is your king? You're pretty pathetic. It's kind of like naming your three-legged dog Lucky. <laughs> God is my king? He sure doesn't feel like he's my king right now. And it's reinforced by again saying they're from Bethlehem and they go, verse 2 says, into Moab and they remain there. They stay there. They're refugees looking for bread. And the amazing thing about Moab, if you just want to see how bad it is to go to Moab, I mean, Moab had pretty horrible origins. Do you know how Moab got started? Do you remember Genesis chapter 19? It's Lot and his incestuous relationship with his daughter. That's how Moab got born. I mean, not exactly the best birth narrative, right? And then you've got um, the resistance to Israel passing through their territory after the Exodus, like we said. You've got the link between Moabite women and leading uh, Israelite men to worship Baal. So they're known that if you marry a Moabite woman, you're probably going to become a Baal worshiper. That's from Numbers 25. Um, therefore, they're constitutionally excluded. Moab cannot come into the assembly. Isn't that ironic? Here we are reading the book of Ruth. Just wait and see what happens with that. But recently, there's also been a war with Moab. I mean, in recent memory for Elimelech and his family, there's been war. At the beginning of the book of Judges, chapter 3, there's this crazy story about one of the judges that rises up in Israel named Ehud. He's the left-handed man. He hides his sword where the king of Moab can't see it. And as a result, he ends up stabbing the king of Moab. And it's that gross, really, really gross story where he can't get the blade out afterwards. And he leaves it there. I mean, now you're all going to go home and read it, right? The Boy Scouts are going to go home and read it, right? The, the story of the sword getting stuck. Read it. Judges 3. It's crazy. Um, all of this says that Moab is the worst place to be. It's the worst imaginable circumstance that this family could be in. But it gets worse. Verse 3 says, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies. Well, that worked out well, didn't it? Well, they got two sons. Good. Verse 4 says they marry Moabite women. Now, intermarriage, by the way, and we'll talk more about this as we go through the book of Ruth, intermarriage is frowned upon in most of the Old Testament. 
But here's why. It's not because God is xenophobic. It's not because God loves one nation and doesn't love the other nations. Israel is called out to be a light to the nations. All the nations are to be blessed through Israel. God is for all nations. But in the history of Israel, intermarriage leads to idolatry. And that's the concern. When Israel, Israelite men, who are not very steadfast, marry foreign women, they end up going and worshiping those other national gods. So that's why intermarriage is frowned upon in through most of the Old Testament. But then even through this marriage, this intermarriage, they're hoping for children. Verse 5, hope is all gone. The two boys die, Malon and Kilion, dead. Hope is gone. Ancient Near East. Naomi, it says, has lost her two sons and lost her husband, which means she's lost everything. Ancient Near East, she, unless she has a brother, which is not referenced here, unless she has a male around her to protect her and provide for her, she's got nothing, she's destitute. It's the end. Ten years, it says, they were married, these Moabite women to these Israel boys, which also seems to imply some kind of barrenness. There's no kids, there's no sons, there's no grandkids, there's nothing. It's the worst set of circumstances ever until verse 6. The glimmer of hope. Verse 6. She stands where she is and intends to return to Israel. Why? Because she has heard that in Judah that the Lord has visited his people and given bread. Bread is there. The famine is over. God has provided bread. And it's this amazing act of grace. God provides. And so she's going to go home. But she's got this problem. Now she's got these two hanger-on, useless daughters-in-law. I say useless because that's the way she treats them. In these next few verses, really what she's doing is offloading the daughters-in-law. She's trying to convince them, listen guys, just go back to your mom's homes. I'm going to go back to Judah. You just go on with your mother's homes. Why? Well, again, Ruth's attitude, and this is where we see two very different attitudes. I mean, Naomi's attitude, Naomi is offloading these women because she's got this ultimate pragmatic view of the world. Pragmatism is the opposite of the steadfastness that we're looking for. There's pragmatism, and there's steadfastness. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm pragmatic in many ways. I like to think through things and plan them. But it can get us in the exact wrong place we need to be when it comes to faith. Because, see, for Naomi, this is how she sees the world. Naomi says, okay, daughters-in-law, you've got nothing you can give me. You, I mean, literally, you've got nothing you can give me. You've got, there's no boys to give you. I can give you nothing. You've got nothing to give me. So, you know, it's, it's been fun for these 10 years. Well, no, it has not been fun these 10 years, but, you know, it's been something. But I'm kind of done with you, so just go. Go home. I don't need you. It's isolation. It's, it's rejection. It's not steadfast. It's pragmatic. You were useful to me for a while, I had hoped, but you're not really that much use anymore, so goodbye. And she treats God the same way. She has this bitter relationship towards God. God, I'm all for God when he's doing what I want him to do, but when he doesn't, then, you know, I'm not that interested. Look at verse 13. No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. I mean, that's her view of God. The hand of the Lord has gone out against her. 
God has done this to me. God doesn't like me. I'm bitter towards God because he is bitter towards me. Look at verse 20 and 21. I didn't read these today. But when they get home to Judah, she says, give me a name change. Don't call me Naomi anymore. Naomi means pleasant. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. Because, she says, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity on me? I mean, this is her looking at her situation saying, you know what? Here's my circumstances. Here's my pragmatic view of the world. These daughters-in-law are doing nothing for me, and this God of Israel is doing nothing for me. So I'm not really that interested. I'm bitter. You see, what Naomi does is she looks at her circumstances to understand her God and her relationships. She looks at her circumstances and said, well, based on all these circumstances, now I can understand my God and my relationships. But Ruth is the total opposite. Ruth looks at her God and through that understands her relationships. Do you see that reversal? Ruth looks to God, says, I know who God is, and based on my knowledge of God, then I can understand what's going on in my circumstances. It's a complete reversal, and as a result, she has a completely different reaction. Where Naomi is a pragmatist, Ruth is steadfast. Ruth is faithful. Ruth literally, verse 14 says, clings to Naomi. You know, Orpah goes... But Ruth clings to her. And you know what's interesting? Is that clinging posture is in fact exactly the kind of behavior that God had required of his people. Cling to me, he says in, in Deuteronomy 30. He says, Deuteronomy 30, describing the act of Israel, the way they are to live their lives, the way they are to treat the Lord God. Verse 30, verses, chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, chapter, verse 19 and 20. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, God says. I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you may and your offspring have, li have life, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and clinging to him, clinging to him, holding fast to him. You see, what Ruth is doing here, she's actually imaging what an Israel postures to be. You, you, you cling, you, you stay, you remain faithful, you're steadfast. She looks more like a follower of Yahweh than this follower of Yahweh. The Moabite woman looks more like a true Israelite. And it's interesting that, you know, Naomi before had said in verse 15, or just after this in verse 15, says, you know, follow after your sister-in-law. Look, she's gone back to her country and to her gods. I mean, do you, do you hear that? She's saying, You've been, you've, for 10 years, you've been living in our house. You've worshipped Yahweh, you know, the God of Israel. You've got to know him. Um, and that hasn't really gone too well for you, has it? So um, go back to your gods. Go back to Chemosh, that bloodthirsty Moabite God. Let's go, go back to Chemosh. Maybe that'll work out better for you. I mean, do you hear that pragmatism? This isn't going well, and so we better go look for some other God or some other family that'll work for me. Instead, Ruth looks at her God and says, I've been 10 years in this house. That's what verse 4 says. 10 years. 10 years she lived like an Israelite. She got to know Yahweh. She got to know the story of Israel. And for 10 years, she's heard a different picture of who God is. 
The God of Israel is steadfast. The God of Israel is faithful. You see, there's a little throwaway line, and this is the key. If you remember nothing else from today, there's a little throwaway line in verse 6. And I don't even think Naomi maybe knows even what she's saying. I mean, she, I think it's just like a throwaway verse, like a little, you know, the Lord bless you. And she says, may the Lord deal kindly with you. That's what she says to her daughters-in-law. May the Lord deal kindly with you. And that word kindly is the whole gospel. It's the word in Hebrew, chesed. Chesed. You got to kind of spit chesed. And it means steadfast love. It means covenant love. It means God's unique character that when he loves you, he doesn't stop. He loves you because he chooses and continues to love you. He loves you not because of your circumstances, but he loves you because he's made a promise to you. He loves you because of covenants. Do you hear that? God's love, God's chesed love, his steadfast love, his covenant love is based not on circumstance, but on covenants. And Ruth has somehow heard this. She's understood this in these 10 years she's been living in a Jewish home. She comes to understand that God is the God of chesed. God is the steadfast one. God loves us not because of what we've done. I mean, oh, does she know that? (laughs) I mean, here she is a Moabite. I mean, don't think she doesn't know what the Israelites think of Moabites. I mean, she knows that There's not great history between our people. And yet here I've been welcomed in. I've been received. I've had that radical hospitality shown to me by the Lord God. He's welcomed me in out of this absolute brokenness. Horrible circumstances he welcomed me in. He's shown me his covenant love. Ruth knows that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. That's Lamentations 3. Ruth knows this somehow. She's heard it. She's heard the gospel. And you know what's amazing is she knows God's chesed love in her life more. And she knows more that God loves me not because of my circumstances, but because he's made a promise to me. The more she knows that, the more she can live it. The more she actually knows that God loves her, not based on circumstances, but based on the covenant, means that then she can go out and she can treat those around her and treat her God likewise. She can live out that hesed. She can cling to Naomi. She can say, I know, it sure doesn't seem like anything's going well in my life right now, but I'm not giving up on my family and I'm not giving up on my God because I know who he is. He is the steadfast one. I want that kind of steadfast faith in my life. I want more steadfast faith rather than pragmatic faith that can blow to and fro with every wind and change. You know, at nighttime with our girls, we pray uh, Compline, as many of you know, the night prayers, and uh, our girls sing little bits of it, and we, we just a short little set of de- bedtime prayers. And what I've always loved about Compline is that by using those liturgical prayers, it's training up children and the adults participating in the faith more and more, right? It's actually giving them deep, thick, joy-filled prayers. And every night my kids will say, will say, first of all, they'll say, um, 
they'll say, uh, after, after God is waking, O Lord, and God is sleeping, that awake we may watch with Christ, and asleep we may rest in peace. And then they say, visit we beseech thee, O Lord, this place, and drive from it all snares of the enemy. Make thy holy angels dwell herein to preserve us in peace forevermore. And then they say, be present, oh, this prayer. And I forget this prayer sometimes. And they'll say, Daddy, you forgot the be present prayer. Be present, O merciful Father, through the silent hours of this night, so that we who are wearied by the changes and chances of this fleeting world may repose upon your, unchange, your changelessness. See, they know better than I do. The point is that they're praying, understanding in their prayers, God does not change. God remains. God is steadfast. I need to hear the gospel the way Ruth heard the gospel. And the amazing thing is you find Christ in this book of Ruth. And you find Ruth, and next, next week we're going to find Boaz, who begin living out this Christ-like behavior, even here in the Old Testament. It's amazing, because friends, every week we gather here, and we have word and sacrament, and, and, and part of what the table does is it teaches us the gospel afresh every week. It tells us, listen, as you prepare to come forward, why do you come? With what confidence do you come? Do you come because, oh, I'm, I'm pretty good? My circumstances look good? Oh, good, good circumstances? I can come to the table. No. You come to the table because of his covenant love for you. You come to the table not because you're steadfast, but because Jesus is steadfast. You, you don't come to the table because everything's working out well in your life. Oh, I'm pretty washed and clean. I can come up to the table today. No, you come to the table because he is steadfast, even when you are not. We come to the table and we're reminded of God's chesed, of his covenant love. Ruth knew it, and that's why she could live it. You and I have it spoken over us each time we celebrate Holy Communion. Will we believe it? I saw Norm... Uh, in Ottawa, two weeks ago, Mr. Steadfast, Mr. Joy, there he was. I was on an ordination service, and I was surprised to see him. Why was I surprised to see him? He goes to everything. And as we came up to communion, and I was serving communion, I met Norm at the communion rail. And I had hugged him before the service, and there was a remembrance of Norm even through my vestments. But even as I came up to the table and he was, I came up to the rail and there he was, that sense was right there, that seeming contradiction. His circumstances, his life broken in so many ways. And yet here he was with joy on his face, hands outstretched, steadfast. And I realized that, that, that stench, that's not a contradiction. That stench is a sacrament of the gospel. He was putting on display for me in a way that I could even smell the picture of God's chesed love. It is not our circumstances. It is not what we've done or what's going on in our lives makes us worthy to come. But it is God's invitation and call. That radical hospitality. That night when I saw Norm I saw the gospel. I saw and smelled what chesed really means. I want to be steadfast. And so do you. So will we look to the God 
our God who has shown us steadfast love. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.